our listeners. Welcome back to Mind Wolf, the podcast where you listen to opinion makers. And uh, this morning we have three guests, one from uh, MindRP and two from Deloitte. Let's first welcome our guests in Deloitte. Uh, good day, Corneille and Carl. Uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Nice to be Thank here. You. So, Corneille, Azel, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself. You haven't been in Deloitte for a long time, but uh, we might not be have had a long association with yourself. Uh, tell us about yeah. yourself and what you do now. Uh, thank you, John. Um, yes, so I am a metallurgical engineer by formal training, but I've always been involved in the digital space and in mining. So my career has followed that trend um, for the most part. I have come to work with MinorP since I think it's 2017, correct me if I'm wrong, 2016 actually, setting up some initiatives for, for some mining clients. And then I um, joined a, a, a mining company to actually learn about implementing digital mining solutions, which was a very interesting learning curve. And I guess um, the basis of the article that I wrote was just to share some practical lessons learned through that experience. I think uh, we can uh, we can tend to be very theoretical when we set things up during the pre-commercial phases of a project, um, especially in the digital mining space. But I certainly learned a lot of practical things through um, implementing solutions like that. Uh, I joined Deloitte in February, wanting to learn more about the operational side of things, operational excellence, how you set up organizations to effectively implement and get value from digital solutions in, in the mining space, but also the energy resource and industry sector, uh, and also to learn to work with teams and become a bit more of a team manager. So I'm very, Excellent. very excited about the opportunities there. Corneille, you've also introduced very lightly the, uh, the, the topic already. Let me give credence to that. Uh, when Corneille uh, left a previous uh, employee to join Deloitte, so I think it was the day between you left and when you joined, uh, you wrote this article on LinkedIn called Seven Challenges You'll Face Digitizing a Mine. So that's what we're talking about today. And um, yeah, Carl Antunison, you're no stranger to Deloitte or to MinerP. Yes, John. So thanks. I think um, I've had a long career with, with Deloitte and prior to that, also in industry as, as a process engineer and a planning specialist. And I've been with Deloitte for about eight and a half years now. And the last year I spent, over the last couple of months, at least I spent in the analytics practice. And I'm currently leading the analytics and cognitive team in, in consulting. So prior to that, I spent almost eight years um, in the mining in the mining practice. And that's where we did a lot of things in both capital assurance, as well as the operational excellence environment in, in the mining industry, in feet, feet on the ground type of, type of work. Carl, that uh, capital effect is a good topic. Uh, I think we need to do a separate podcast with you on that. Carl, a little bit more on your background. Before the eight years, your, your studies, and you're one of those guys that keep, keeps on studying, I believe. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. <laughs> yeah, so maybe a, a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but I'm, a, I'm an industrial engineer by training. So I started my started my studies in industrial engineering. I, late, I did my master's in industrial engineering as well, focusing on sort of more of the sort of analytical kind of work, modeling and, and algorithm development for, for routing and scheduling problems. I worked in a kind of started my career, at least as a modeler, doing simulation optimization models in the oil and gas industry. Uh, wow. Later on went into, into manufacturing where I played roles as a planning specialist and as well as a process engineer. And during that time, I also completed my MBA. And then following my MBA, I did a further qualification in, in management accounting. 
because um, I always thought, thought that's, a, that's an interesting link between decision-making and, and business. Um, so, and, and that is my passion, sort of, I, I always interested in how you make good decisions in a business environment. And that's, that's how I ended up in the analytics space. So dear audience, you can see why Deloitte is our partner and why the individuals in the partner agreements that we have, that the individuals matter and why opinion makers are brought to this podcast. Marlies, this is not your first podcast that you've done with us at MindWarp. No, and the first one was on my academic speciality, which is organizational behavior and change management, but my more practical speciality is implementation of projects, specifically digitization projects um, for MineRP. And of late, I have been responsible for also um, putting together the methodology that we use to implement these projects at our various clients. Uh, and they dovetail with uh, what Deloitte does um, <laughs> when we work together. So yeah, hopefully some of that will come out now. Cornel, let's circle back to yourself. You wrote this article as a result of real deep, hard practical experience at a client where MinorP also were at, but uh, you were the client. So um, tell us about the seven things that you have learned during that implementation. Thanks, John. Yes, um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the, the things I've learned um, had less to do uh, around the technology and more to do around people and processes. And really, a lot of things relate to the fundamentals of project management and change management. So I, I think you'll see there's a lot of things we'll refer back to as fundamentals as we go through some of these challenges. So uh, could you list the seven challenges that uh, clients will, will have? Because we will be walking through that with our panel now and discussing them. Yeah, so um, the seven key challenges I wanted to point out was the one of agility, one of speed, um, managing surprises and assumptions, the challenges around people, the importance of understanding the underlying business processes uh, and, and pitfalls that you need to look out for for that, the topic of critics, which um, there are plenty of, and then also um, the topic of scope, which relates closely to agility and speed as well. Perfect. Let's dive in. Let's look at the first one, um, agility. Tell us about the, that point and um, what did you write about? What did you find practically? And let's ask uh, Karen Marlies to comment on this. Absolutely, John. I think a lot of people starting on their digital journeys want to do things agile, not perhaps fully understanding what it means and what the implications of it is. I think there's three key things that stand out for me. The first one is it is a partnership that goes both ways. And, and, and that spirit of partnership is important, but you also have to live that in a practical sense. So for me, um, one of the big challenges is um, commercial processes. I think uh, a lot of companies are used to procuring hardware and very well-defined services. Um, while in doing digital mining, you, you don't always know all of the answers. You don't always know all of the input assumptions. It's not always easy to confirm in advance because the, the point obviously to, is to get going. If you want to get going and create value, you can't uh, spend all your time in the design phase. You, you at some stage have to make assumptions and get going. Commercial process needs to be aligned with that from a very practical point of view. And I, I mentioned a few key things that I thought would have worked well along with an agile process uh, in, the, in the post itself, which we don't have to get into, but I guess commercial process needs to align with how you plan on executing the strategy. And the second point for that then is having 
proper project management rigor and fundamentals in place. It has to be a disciplined approach and agile implementation isn't an excuse for poor project management. Yeah. Uh, it, in fact, I think it requires more rigor because you always need to make sure that the small steps you are taking is going to get you towards the end goal. And, and I think the third thing is um, around that being agile and being responsive to the client's needs. I think it's important to have the right kind of relationships where you can have honest and difficult conversations. And I think it's important to have them from the start, not to let things that don't line up brew until it, it can no longer contain itself and then it you know gets out of control. Have the difficult conversations early, have them often, and I think that's that's pretty important. I think it's easy to lose focus when you are trying to be agile and responsive. I think it's important to put rigor around it, have tough conversations to make sure that you stay focused and you stay on track with what you intended to do. Very good points. Marlies, in your job as the Director of Service Development and Methodology in MinorP, Agile is, um, is not uh, a topic that is foreign to you and to what you're busy doing. How does scope and agility complement or distract from one another? Yeah, John, I think um, being an innovative company like we are, we're no stranger to being agile. Um, and sometimes we are often over agile, I suppose. And I think that's where um, Cornet's point of still having the fundamentals and the rigor in place comes into play. Our opinion is and that this is something that we've been living for the past few years is if we understand what the value is that we ultimately want to get to and we keep our eye on that, then the agility goes around the value that we want to, to implement. So that's almost our guiding principle that we take as, as the focus for um, being agile is around being agile to deliver the value that we want to achieve. Mm. So yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a hindrance or, or, or not. It is more of managing that to get to the value that you ultimately want to achieve and also to be agile in that value journey if it stretches over time. Carl, we have uh, clients that says to us, please go agile. And so by the way, here's Deloitte, it's my partner. They will teach us how to agile. Please go agile. Um, your view on this? Yeah, so I think my my view on agile is I think you have to understand when we talk about agile, there's two concepts that that you need to like almost keep keep separate in your mind. The one is business agility or project agility. So the ability to respond to change, uh, whether it's from the environment or just because I think when we talk about digital, you've inherently got got some uncertainties around how you're going to achieve the results you want from your project. It's just an inherently uncertain journey that you've set on because it hasn't been done before. The second thing then is is the agile delivery approach, which is a, is a project delivery methodology oh. that is that is not necessarily the same thing as business agility, but as a very specific kind of um, advantages and disadvantages. And I think what some sometimes goes goes unsaid is that first uh, agile delivery methodology is still a rigorous methodology if you apply it properly. It's it's not throwing. I mean, again, to Cornet's point, it's not throwing rigor or project management discipline out of the window. But secondly, it's not always appropriate for, for every type of deliverable. It's particularly well suited where, where you want rapid um, delivery of outcomes and you want feedback on that outcomes to refine the way forward. But some projects are not by their nature structured like that. And for that, you need to, uh, to, to consider alternatives. So, so Agile sounds nice. And as an organizational capability, I think it's critical to have that for um, digital projects going back because of the inherent um, unpredictability. 
but um, I think you always need to think through your project delivery approach and look at what you're trying to achieve, how mature is the technologies and what is the appropriate project delivery methodology. Agile should not be the default. Ah, oh, very good point. Uh, Cornelio, your second point was about speed. So what is it? Go slow, go fast. I think it's a, an interesting balancing point that it's difficult to, to, to pinpoint. It's a bit of an art, I would say. I think the, the two things here is that um, as a project manager for a project, both, both sides on the, on the client side and the vendor side, you have to work together to manage the speed. And what I mean by that is it has to be sustainable. You need to be able to follow good governance processes. If you're too much in a hurry because of pressures from, from all sides, obviously the, the vendor side will be anxious to proceed. They want to invoice and get paid and show some good references. So there's pressure from that side. There's pressure from your own executive management because they typically sponsor these kind of projects and they're not always cheap. So they are in a hurry. They've got shareholder commitments. Uh, and if you're addressing a real business need, your, your team on the ground will be in a hurry. So the only one that's going to push back on speed is going to be the project managers. And the reason they should be pushing back on, on speed is to make sure that you have the right kind of progress, but allowing for good governance during that process. So the one side is governance, the other side is change management. People need to have time to get buy-in, to adopt, to get used to the new new way of doing things. And that, that takes time. You can't really um, put too much pressure on that. And, and you have to balance both the governance processes and the, and the speed and the change management you need to apply with the capacity you have and the capacity of the team whose lives you are busy changing, but also the capacity you have in your own team to manage this process with the right governance and, and, and the right processes. So that for me is, is quite tricky. It's, I'm not sure what the answer is. I think it's the balancing point is, is tricky for, um, and, and is determined on a, on a project by project basis, but also from a program perspective. So it, it depends on how many projects you have on your plate. How, how much change are you asking your operational teams to do? There's a limit to how much you can ask from them as well. So you have to understand the collective programs change impact that you are, are going to have and, and pace yourself accordingly. Yeah, and the fatigue that you'll have as a result of all the things that you want done in a short space of time. Carl, coming from a business angle, what about quality and adoption? Dajan, so I think <laughs> Cornel already ex explained that quite well, but maybe just to add to that, I think um, there's a lot of things you can rush when you're under pressure. There's a lot of things that you can throw additional resources in, but you need, as a project manager, right, you need to know what are the things that can be accelerated and what are the things that just take time. So my wife work, works in agriculture and, and she knows very well, right, you, you can't grow a crop faster by pouring more water and more um, more fertilizer onto it. It needs time. And and the two things I think that you cannot rush or shouldn't rush is, is like when I said, the one is adoption. So the time people take to to take new change on board. And that is almost a, um, there's a capacity. There's a there's a limit to how much change you can you can and how fast you can force change on organization and a really skilled um, sponsor and project management can do it faster. But but if you if you start um, going roughshod over those processes, you're going to pay for it later. And the second thing is quality um, and making sure that 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 you don't bypass or shortchange your quality processes before you start start pushing out your deliverables. And I will remember my my first manager always told me, if someone asks you and tells you there isn't enough time to do it properly, 
remember, you'll always find time to fix the problems <laughs> that the rush delivery causes. That there, there will be time for that. So rather do it do it uh, properly, it, it will be faster. Marlies, it's interesting to hear the discussion from our Deloitte partners and friends about the juxtaposition of change and adoption. Adoption is a word that you came up with to really position Minopi's play in the such that we have ample boundary and opportunity to work together. Very shortly, what is adoption? So, John, adoption is the ability of people to adopt a new way of working. And that goes hand in hand with change management, which is actually a, a, a bigger concept and involves quite a bit more. But our niche focus is making sure people can adopt new ways of doing, whether that's through a new piece of technology, a new process, but it's adopting that so that it becomes part of their day-to-day -day job and it becomes part of the way that they do things without them even knowing that um, this is now a new way and it becomes natural to them to do stuff in a new way. Excellent. Marlies, we can talk more about that later. Cornet, uh, take us to your third point. One face in digitizing a mind, uh, you've written about assumptions and surprises. So you probably had to deal with lots of assumptions that were made and not made. Uh, lead us into that. Yes, um, John, at the onset of the project, you, you make certain assumptions. And, and what you also find is, is once you look at, at the contracts you had with different vendors, all the assumptions are listed there, but they're not really managed proactively. Uh, I started uh, managing those during the pre-contracting phase. So when you're going through an RFP process with different vendors, you, you make them list the assumptions up front. You discuss each one of them. What if this goes wrong? What will happen? Who's responsible? How much will that cost extra? Those sort of things. I think we we often rush through the assumptions. You know, it's there as a as a checkbox to to cover your backside, if you know what I mean. And really, what needs to do is you need to manage those things upfront and consistently. So it's it's upfront having open conversations with your vendors around the assumptions and what happens if things go wrong. And then secondly, what I find very useful is when you're having your weekly team meetings and you're having your steering committees, put all risks on the table. Um, the only time you take a risk off of the table is when it is confirmed as being resolved, um, not when you think it's been mitigated or you don't think it's a serious problem. Um, don't let your opinion or assessment of the risk uh, make you remove that from, from the forum. I think leave everything on the table. That's That would be one of the key things. And I think the third thing is when you do eat a snag, um, don't, don't be afraid to escalate. Um, don't worry about who's going to get in trouble because you didn't uh, you know, pick up. That's going to be an issue. Rather um, tackle it head on, get the right people in, the, in a forum and make a decision. It's going to be the best decision for the long run. Pivot if you have to, pause if you have to. I think that was a massive lesson learned. Carl, um, Deloitte is also trusted for risk management. We are in conversations with executives at a very large um, international mining group, both platinum and gold, and uh, they told us about what they've learned from Deloitte in risk management and how MineUp is able to support that. Uh, does risk management support assumptions, surprises? Yeah, so maybe I'll draw back on my experience with capital projects, right? So, so when it comes to surprises, it's and you do kind of post mortem on capital projects that maybe didn't go go as well as as they should have, and and I think you can generalize it to most projects. Is one thing to understand is it doesn't matter how big your budget is or how important your project is. The universe has has absolutely no respect for your plan, <laughs> and it will upset it. <laughs> and uh, risk management is important. So this is not typically something that project teams get get particularly excited about. 
but the very interesting observations that I've had through through all my sort of travails through the, these kind of assessments is if you look at things that went wrong in a project and you go back to the risk register, almost invariably, every single thing that came to pass that hurt the project was on the risk register. And almost invariably, the response planning was the issue. So, so either, either they didn't plan a proper response, it was fluffy and, and uh, not executable, or the trigger points on when they should be executed were not well-defined. And the right, the right time to sort of think clearly through the things is not in the middle of the crisis, it's before on how you're going to respond so that you don't waste time trying to plan your way out of it when it occurs. You already need that plan in place. The recurring risk management, I think at the end of the day is, I don't want to say it's a good thing to have. It's, it's crucial because it's not a case of we're going to work out unless, unless a risk comes up. The risk always, there's always, always risks that materialize in any significant project. And even though participation is fairly reluctant by the project team, almost invariably, they know what they are and they are able to identify them correctly. It's that admission of, no, this thing can actually happen and we do actually need to prepare for it. That, that's often where things go wrong. I, I'm starting to, uh, to get a suspicion that there's something else that we need to talk about because it's not as if the headings are, you know, uh, shockingly unobvious. Uh, my mind's going towards, so why did the risk management uh, and surprises and assumptions not work? What were the political and the power uh, flow uh, stopping those discussions happening? You identified people as challenge number four. So what about people is it that uh, you want to point out? The, the one thing I would say that can really, really hurt the project is people capacity. It can really be a real, real challenge. Poor meeting attendance, uh, I think those things should be flagged early. However uncomfortable it is to raise that as an issue, it is important that you, you get those things right. I'm busy with a project right now that, you know, the meeting attendance is phenomenal and it makes all the difference because people are always aware of what's going on and they are committed to, to the project. It shows a level of commitment. I think people, capacity in the, in the delivery team, but also capacity in the operational team, it's very important. We also have a saying that says, um, no pressure, no flow. Uh, you need the right kind of pressure from the top, but having too much pressure from the top or the wrong kind of pressure from the top can also be um, make people very nervous. So you have to manage the expectations upwards and downwards and make sure they are aligned. So those are two two critical people things that need to be managed. Carl, sponsorship, you, uh, as a result of your position and what you where you consult, you probably get asked to work alongside or very close to the sponsors. What works and what doesn't work? Maybe just from a consulting point of view, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that um, people people don't don't engage us unless unless there's a real need for, uh, for for consulting, and they typically have a vested interest in making sure we're successful. So we we typically get good sponsorship, but I think um, it's just something to keep in mind is that if you if you don't have the right sponsorship, in other words, if if you don't have good alignment to the organization's objectives and have someone that that's driving it and believing in it you're going to be swimming upstream to be very blunt you're not going to get the results you want you're not going to you're not going to get it through and i've personally experienced that um when i was still in industry with trying to drive certain operational efficiencies and and standards and things on my own and at this at, at some point during during this um battle we had a change in management the new management was barely aware of what i was trying to drive but their focus was different and the whole organization suddenly started supporting things that sort of went into the new leaders thinking and everything that I was trying to do suddenly just became much, much, much easier. The resistance kind of dissolved and people were keen to get on board and, and sharing the success. So, so I think it's, it's, um, 
yeah, when it comes to people, I mean, the influence that a strong sponsor has just on the momentum of the organization is going to be understated. And at least since you have a PhD in change, uh, I often like to quote you. You have a quote about this. <laughs> what interests my boss fascinates me. Um, <laughs> and I think that it's not just strong sponsorship. It's also the right sponsorship. So you can have strong sponsorship, but not the right sponsorship. And that can also then um, lead to problems. So it's it's really, um, it's that sponsor that understands that speed balance is putting the right pressure on so that we don't just um, continue with the project forever and a day because we want to get everyone's um, input and, and engagement and understanding, but also knowing that um, pushing the people too far will just have us to, to repeat and um, and, and every time you repeat and then try to fix things, the people engagement and adoption becomes more and more difficult. So rather take a little bit longer, a sponsor that understands that, take a little bit longer to engage with people um, and get it right the first time, specifically when you work with frontline. You only get a limited amount of chances to try and fix your mistakes when, when we work with people. And you need to um, put in the time so that you can do it um, right the first time. Adding to that, we, together with Deloitte, we push clients into, into new topics, new way of managing their minds. Executives uh, love the story. They instinctively know it's the right direction. In fact, they come up with many of the words themselves. But then we find that there's, uh, there's maturity in processes and people that's missing. Uh, for instance, uh, integrated scheduling is a, is a topic that everybody instinctively knows will solve it. But the power basis and the knowledge, et cetera, under this topic of coordinating around people also lacks and attention needs to be given to capability maturity, right? Um, important, not just the maturity, but also the capability, not just of the organization on specific dimensions, but also of the people executing within those dimensions. And I think the trick is understanding where you need to be on a capability maturity matrix, not necessarily that you want to be the ultimate just because you want to reach that ultimate goal of capability maturity, but what is for that dimension, um, the realistic steps of getting to your goal of where you want to lie the capability maturity matrix. So yeah, um, important to assess that in the beginning and plan with your sponsor and your, your organization where, you, where the ultimate is where you want to go and the steps to get there. Corne, your fifth uh, challenge that you put is process. It's a misused word. What is it that triggered you to write about that? Uh, I was preached about process from the beginning, um, especially by by minority, and 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 initially didn't give it that much attention. But later on in the process, as we started um, getting close to actually getting that project implemented, um, realized the value that uh, mapping the business process can bring. I know it's part of many practices. Out. I, I learned the value of it. I think it's important to make sure you understand the underlying process, how the technology will support it, how it will change it. It's important to make sure you can map that process in a very simple manner. You have to have the detailed version of that as well for from a technical point of view, but it's 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 important communication tool as well. It helps with when you do training, when you want to put posters up on the walls to have people understand how is this going to change my life. Having done those process mapping is quite important and it's extremely valuable to me. It's one of the first things I do when we even think about a project right now. And so I think it's very important to do that. The second thing around processes is when you start at the beginning of the project to map out the process, you often get a mix of 
the as is process and the what I wish it was process that people aspire to. So I think it's important when you get into a project and you map the as is process that you also spend a bit of time observing that process and getting that confirmation for yourself because that will give you immense insight into how that process actually works and, and where the opportunities lies to improve that. And I would say this, if you do observe a process and you see it's very broken, raise that flag early, don't pretend like everything's perfect and then you try and put technology on top of that, your project will fail. That is that's <laughs> something else I've learned. Marlise, uh, we've been challenged by John McGannon, the head of strategy of MindRP to say, not everybody gets excited by a scroll 50 meters long and that we need to put placemats there. What is a placemat and what are we doing with that together with uh, Deloitte? John, so it's to Cornet's point where, of course, we need to understand the process in a lot of detail, but ultimately we should also have post-complexity simplicity, I suppose, that we are able to, on one page, put the essence of a process there that people can really relate to quickly and understand very quickly and use in, um, in their day-to-day -day jobs. So that's our placemats, is our attempt to make sure that the information that we have in a lot of detail actually becomes valuable, not just for solution architecture, but for how do I run my business and what do I need to do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and it's understandable to everyone that looks at it. We are fortunate to have three uh, women on the call, uh, obviously Corneille and Mar Marlies, but also our production uh, manager for marketing, Yandri, which we introduced the previous podcast. So as women in mining, uh, Carl, yourself and myself, we are very privileged today. So the next point comes to critics, and I specifically introduce it like that because I assume, Corneille, that as a young engineer, being the digital transformation person for the client, uh, you pulled some critics, which maybe some men would not have pulled. Yes, so um, I, I'll, I've got two points around critics. I think the second point will, will probably point that out a bit more. I think the first thing is, as I was implementing my first project and going through the learning curves, one book I found extremely useful to me and very valuable, and I still quote it quite often, uh, is Beth Comstock's book about Imagine It Forward. And her first quote that I really like is, a change maker's job is to maintain a certain level of discomfort. So if, if people feel uncomfortable and you get criticized, it means you've done your job well. I think the trick there is to make sure that you don't take it personally. We all have our own insecurity and relationships we want to maintain. So we have to be conscious of having that process of agitated inquiry where you do get some critics to give you feedback, but I think it's important to also make sure that you don't let it derail you. Um, just because someone had an opinion about how you go about a process doesn't mean process is wrong and you have to throw everything out of the door. It just means take that on board, let it make your project stronger, use that critic actually to test things against. So I think that's an important thing that I had to learn, which was very difficult. I came new into the company and wanted to build good relationships and, and found it difficult when, when I got criticized. The second thing Beth talks about is the rolling thunder. So just because someone says no doesn't mean no. It means sometimes just not yet. And I think it is one of those things where sometimes you just have to hear it you know, from someone else. Sometimes you need to hear it a certain amount of times. I don't always know what the answer is. But what I've experienced and, and found often frustrating is that 
I can explain a concept to a person 10 times and it's like they, they don't really listen or don't really want to believe it. I ask someone else to come in and explain it to them, typically a male um, in my environment, and suddenly they, they understand it, they're fully on board, fully supportive, and really what's going on in their mind is I explained that to you just an hour ago, exactly the same words, and now you get it. So it, it can feel sometimes frustrating. I think what I try to do to manage that is I try not to think of it as it's because I'm a woman, but you, you can't help thinking towards that, that train of thought. I think sometimes it just has to do with the fact that sometimes people just need to hear it a certain amount of times or from a variety of people. Uh, we, own have a, uh, we each have our own internal biases, so perhaps that person's um, physical traits or the way they express themselves was just the right way for that person to really understand it. I think we can all learn from that and use it. Um, if you feel like you're not making big strides after you've explained yourself 50 times, just bring in someone else. Maybe they can just put it differently. Try not to read too much into it. It often makes you think um, whether it has to do with the fact that you are not a minor having worked um, in the pit, you know, for so many days or whether you're a woman and are not perceived as credible. Those thoughts certainly do come into your head. Uh, I try to um, give people the benefit of the, the, the doubt and try not to make too much of it. Ooh, so I'm uh, expecting lots of feedback on this podcast. You carry your argument well thought uh, very well. Let's uh, enter into the last challenge, scope. And again, one of those obvious ones, but uh, what have you learned, Corne? So John, for me, the scope, it's a balance between coverage and penetration. So um, I think you, you are, we are always tempted to chew off a lot, to, to, to cover a lot of disciplines and make a difference in, in each of those lives. But I think if I could go, go back in time and rescope a, a particular project that I have in mind, I would probably target a smaller part of the business teams yeah. and make a meaningful impact in their lives uh, instead of trying to change everyone's a little bit. When you do that, you have to be cognizant of siloed thinking. You don't want one department, you know, specifying and building a solution for, for them specifically. And then you haven't thought about how that would integrate with others. But at least from a change management perspective, you should make sure you include all the bordering stakeholders as well. But at least you don't have to try and keep five different disciplines that operate in the same environment to try and keep all of their needs um, satisfied. I think I would say um, make sure that you get your target scope right. Try and focus on a, a smaller team that can um, experience a meaningful impact. That would be my advice. And I think, Carl, um, you mentioned uh, before when we talked about this around value management and perhaps, um, John, if you can take over some of some of your role as moderator, Carl can perhaps um, expand a bit more around um, how to manage value um, through scope. Go for it, Carl. I'm going to link this right back to my first sort of um, comments on Agile as a, as a methodology and, and why sometimes it, it can be very attractive, right? When you're looking at biting off uh, like a piece of scope that you're going to deliver, right? What, what I've learned through my consulting career is um, there's almost a technical, technical pieces of scope that you can define and deliver products. But in our environment, and I think I think when you when you try to evaluate the conversation, it's always a case of okay, but but what's the smallest amount of incremental value that can you deliver? And and you might need several pieces of technology and change before there is value. And my kind of learning around that was always try to shuffle these things around in terms of the sequence and priorities so that you can show incremental value on a continuous basis, right? As often as possible, that it builds on each other, it builds confidence in the program, it builds traction, it builds credibility, 
it kind of creates a kind of a, a, a snowball effect, and then you can then you can with some credibility like take on take on bigger pieces, and you'll you'll get the kind of buy-in. If you start with something really big and you don't have something to show for a long time, even if you're on track, you start sort of losing momentum after a while, and people start asking, oh, "Why are we spending all this money again? And why aren't we seeing anything again?" Even even though it was known from the start, right? Because no one is as intimate with with the project details as the project manager and the project team. So so you might understand it, but it's very difficult to keep keep people on board. So I always like to try and arrange the delivery method or the delivery approach so that you you can show value often and try and prioritize the sort of low-hanging fruit first. It might sound like you're trying to pick out the eyes, but but at the same time, you want to almost use that to fund the, the capabilities and the and the sort of foundations for the rest of the program. So my least, Carl and, and Deloitte, in the bigger Deloitte, they would have bigger things to fry. Um, we have a specific view of that value, and we call it the value journey. Um, tell us a bit more about that. John, so it's it's the start of all of our projects is defining um, what the ultimate value points are that we need to deliver and then creating a complete value journey that will lead us towards that um, ultimate value point that we want to reach. And that goes much hand in hand with um, picking the, the smaller and quicker value points first. We also have to arrange the, um, the implementation of our technology in a certain way to get to those um, bigger value points. And I think there the communication of what we are doing, what it will take to get to those um, value points together with the capability maturity journey will um, ultimately create our value journey so that we um, have this balance of showing value um, quickly and often but keeping our eye on our bigger value journey that we want to create over a, a, a multiple years in most cases. So uh, at the end, once one have done all these seven things, uh, a project gets to an end and it all comes to a head. Cornea, tell us about that unconscious trigger, as you call it, but also the things that's causing or improving uh, all of these uh, challenges to be better. Uh, thanks, John. The a big realization was that the, you have to get the fundamentals right. I think digital transformation projects are very different than other projects. Uh, if you compare it to hardware projects, um, you know, very well-defined scope projects. So they are different in nature, and that makes certain of these fundamentals, um, you know, you have to have the required focus. That's basically some of the things that came out for me personally. One of the things we've we've realized as well is you know, close towards the end of the project, right about the time when people start using this, uh, getting, you know, training on the system, the user acceptance testing gets started, people get really, really nervous. Management gets nervous because they've spent, they've spent a lot of money or a lot of time has gone by and they're not seeing the value yet. So a lot of noise can crop up around that time. Management gets nervous from both sides. You typically see people are trying to escalate the project status, um, but really, Really, it's a it's a natural thing that happens towards that time of the project when people start getting nervous. Your critics pop up. Um, why didn't you do it this way? Why wasn't I involved with the specification? Why did you make those decisions? So a lot of people get very nervous around that time. It's very, very normal. I've seen it now time and time again. And it's very interesting to watch and know that it's coming. I think the, the key advice is when you get close to that time, just realize people are going to go through some some uncomfortable changes and that's gonna make a lot of things surface that are perhaps uh, more noise than things worth 
um, spending a lot of time on. That's just my word, words of wisdom around when you when you're executing a project and you are getting close to going live, that's natural for it to happen. And and the other thing, John, is is having the right partnership, um, both sides. I think from a vendor perspective, you have to have the right vendor that's going to partner with you on the long run. You have to be a good partner uh, if you are going to be the client, and you have to have the right culture. Um, to make that partnership work. Um, it is give and take. You have to keep each, each other accountable, um, but you have to be reasonable um, to both parties. And um, within the right culture, uh, organizational culture, management culture, um, these projects can be extremely successful. I've experienced very different cultures, same, same project, different cultures. It's amazing to see what a good culture can do to a project. Yeah, I think that's that's just my summary around partnership and culture. Excellent. So it helps to use a team that's done it before. Carl, let's start with you. What are you reading currently? <laughs> so the book that I've got next to my bedside table is, um, is it Talking to Strangers from Malcolm Gladwell. So it's an interesting book. It's about how we um, understand people and how we often get it wrong and what we can do about it. I've never heard of that. That's going to be a nice uh, addition to our list. Marlies, yourself? Yep, so mostly I'm reading Zaki and Minky books from Jaku Jacobs to my children. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've recently also, I don't want to say, um, I've rediscovered, I suppose, the Harvard Business Review um, because it gives me quick readings that I can quickly read about multiple topics, um, reading about team management and team development, um, agility in business, etc. Um, reading short uh, articles, I suppose, quickly uh, on a variety of topics. Corne, and uh, yeah, we want to thank you for your insight with the seven points, but also very interested to hear what you're reading. Yes, Jean, I am a big fan of self-help uh, and improvement books, but I had a professional coach who, who put me on hold for that because I, I spent probably too much time reading on those things. So I, I changed direction with a with a book that was recommended by Skulk Liebenberg from Minor P. Actually, when I posted this article, uh, the book's name is Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know from someone's name I can't properly pronounce. So apologies for that. Runolf Finis. And really, it is an Arctic explorer. I really, having read that, it's a testament of people really going through much harder times than I think we go through with our digital transformation and even in mining. So it's really inspirational to see people practicing their trade like that and persevering through the most difficult times to achieve their goals. So really enjoying it. It's an autobiography. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your insights. Uh, I hope that clients will listen to this and uh, configure their projects towards these obvious but not so obvious things. Thank you very much. Bye.